Hello, I'm Letitia, founder of personal coaching company Looper, and this is the New Leaf podcast. New Leaf explores the practical, emotional, and sometimes messy side of getting back to work after having had a baby, but with a particular focus on pre and post baby identity. In each episode, I interview incredible ladies and sometimes the odd bloke to find out quite how they manage their returns together with their challenges and vulnerabilities. In the age where the pressure for female perfection and having it all has never been higher, welcome to New Leaf. Follow the podcast on Instagram at, at newleafpodcast to find out more and follow me at loopergrowth to find out about my prenatal and postnatal mama coaching program. So this episode was one of my favourites to record, but in many ways one of my toughest. In thinking about the prologue for this, I've had to dig quite deep to be able to tell a portion of my story that's relevant. And it's a line that my guest says in the episode that inspired me to do it, which is, my story is the whole reason behind what I do, and it's A, important for people to know why I've done it, and B, that they are not alone. I will tell the complete story one day if I can find someone brave enough to interview me, but I will give the context to why her story of her little girl born with such severe health problems that was so painful and difficult to experience with her. So, my story. After a blissfully normal final scan at 36 weeks, I'd had reduced fetal movements at about 37 and a half. I'd been for coffee with my lovely NCT friends on a very sunny Easter Friday and remembered expressing how frustrated I was at my previous midwife appointment, where I'd been asked if I was happy with the baby movements. Like the other girls, I wasn't really sure what normal was as a first-time mum, and we all tried to reassure each other that, well, I guess they must change because the babies are so big now, I'm not sure. I also mentioned that I'd felt super swollen, my rings wouldn't fit, I felt shattered, but, you know, who doesn't when they're nine months pregnant? I waddled home and, having successfully perused the internet to find nothing helpful, I drank some cold water, ate a whole bag of mini eggs and promptly felt my baby son hiccup. Excellent, I thought, just me being silly. And, stupidly, I went to bed. What I now know, thanks to the charity Kicks Count, is that hiccuping is an involuntary reflex and does not count as baby movements. At 5am the next morning, where usually my little boy would be doing his usual disco dance in my womb, I felt nothing. I prodded my stomach to get his little kick back and had nothing but a bounce back, like a beach ball. I thought of the big posters all over the maternity unit by Kicks Count expressing clearly and in large purple letters that, quote, feeling your baby move is a sign that they are well, unquote. I felt a bit sick and thought, right, time to go. I woke my husband up and we agonised over whether to go in. We were both knackered, it was five o'clock in the morning, didn't really fancy a trip to hospital. We didn't even take a hospital bag or the car seat, we just pootled off to King's College in South London, me with my hand on my stomach, pressing increasingly desperately, poking, prodding, hoping to feel him wake up. Nothing. I got a very slight wave, a slight roll, every 30 minutes or so. I was confused and anxious. I arrived and was hooked up to the big belly bands that monitor the baby heartbeats and the uterus contractions, so I was amused to see my uterus flexing its rehearsal muscles. 
I was also relieved to see and hear the familiar galloping horse sound I'd heard just a couple of days before with my midwife. I watched the big printout sheets carefully with a heartbeat line on top, my uterus contractions below. They looked like sound waves, like a stereotypical heart monitor screen you see in medical dramas, but one on top of the other. Only when my uterus was contracting, I watched his heart rate line go flat. I'd catch my breath, wait a few seconds, my tummy would relax and his heart would just pop back up again. I was given a clicker. Click this whenever you feel the baby move. I clicked once. The midwife came back to check on me, lips pursed, not saying much. And gradually I was moved from room to room until eventually somebody in surgical scrubs turned up. My baby had been pretty stubbornly breached for weeks, so I was always having a planned C-section. But they said, "Uh, yeah, I think we're going to keep you here and deliver the baby tomorrow. I remember feeling excited and thinking, oh, okay, good. Time for him to come then. Thank God. My parents were out of the country at my sister's wedding and my in-laws five hours away up in Scotland. My brother and his wife were at home with their four-week-old. My husband drove home to get the car seat, get the hospital bag, and I was filled with nerves, with excitement and relief that the baby was coming. I promptly texted my close friends, called my parents and twiddled my thumbs. After what felt like seconds only, my husband came back and simultaneously the consultant obstetrics surgeon came over and peered at the printouts. He barked at the midwife quickly. Has it been like this the whole time? And without waiting for an answer said, Right, we're going to do it now. Just 30 minutes later, we were parents. The C-section, though an emergency, was a dream. Don't get me wrong, it's surreal, but above all, it was calm. My little boy was born to Girls Just Wanna Have Fun by Cindy Lauper, playing languidly on Magic FM. I mean, they do just want to have fun. And my tiny and perfect human was raised over the drapes like Simba. About 30 minutes later, all wasn't well. My husband noticed a slight shake in our little boy's leg. What's that? A breezy midwife said, Oh, it's normal. The neurological systems aren't fully mature yet. Don't be anxious. A few more minutes passed and the shaking continued. My little boy's blood sugar was taken as a precaution and it was unreadably low. He was whisked away upstairs to the NICU. And what followed was the most traumatic six months of my life. His oxygen levels were very low and it transpired that I had had, in fact, preeclampsia, a condition affecting blood pressure, a dangerous side effect being reduced oxygen and reduced nutrition to your baby. Preeclampsia disproportionately affects people who are BAME, diabetic, overweight or have naturally high blood pressure. I had none of those risk factors and so I very naively assumed that it just wouldn't affect me. When I was told at my 36-week scan that my blood had shown some markers of preeclampsia, I had just dismissed it. I'd displayed zero symptoms at the time, had normal blood pressure, and I was aware that the only cure for preeclampsia is just to give birth, so I had just shrugged and thought, well, not long to go, I feel fine right now. I later found out that if I hadn't gone in when I did, my baby would have died in the womb and I would have had a stillbirth at full term. We don't know what causes preeclampsia, but it can result in coma and then death of both the mother and the baby. 
Suddenly, the swelling in my face and fingers, the reduced movement, the markers in my blood, it all made sense. My son stayed in the NICU for nearly five weeks. In his incubator, I couldn't hold him. I couldn't change his nappy. I couldn't have skin to skin without four people helping me to get him out of the incubator and dealt with him screaming in pain with all the tests without me being able to comfort him or feed him. I felt completely redundant as a mother. The next few weeks were a painful and slow process of increasing his breast milk intake through a syringe into a tube in his nose, one milliliter at a time. Sorry guys. With each milliliter, his blood sugar wildly swung up and down. He had hyperinsulinism, an extremely rare consequence of preeclampsia that means that they overprocess sugar. He needed bag after bag after bag of sugar syrup straight through a drip into his bloodstream just to keep his blood sugar stable and prevent brain damage. The doctor said it would be a case of lowering the sugar, increasing the breast milk and watching to see what his blood sugar did with a cocktail of accompanying drugs. All my visions of natural birth were gone. I threw myself into the pumping and spent 40 minutes, eight times a day, including overnight, trying to get just barely 20 millilitres out at a time, with none of the oxytocin, none of the cuddles and all of the pain. All of the stress and adrenaline I was feeling was inhibiting my letdown reflex and my supply, but I was absolutely determined and I didn't know what else I could do. I was able to breastfeed successfully with my son actually latching, I think, once. I had 10 beautiful minutes. And after that, the journey was over. I contracted nuclear mastitis, frankly, and a 42 degree temperature. And at week four of my son being in hospital, was re-hospitalised myself just downstairs from him. Oh well, I thought, at least I don't have to drive in to see my son because I'm right here, I suppose. It took three bags of IV antibiotics to knock the temperature down and I was told that I'd need to up the pumping to 12 times per day if I was going to get my supply back up. I was told that due to my son's drugs, I would never be able to properly put my son on the boob as it was imperative that we measured his fluid intake to the milliliter. I was physically and mentally broken. Midwives, however, are angels. And I will never forget the midwife who admitted me, saying, You know, you don't have to do this. You've managed unbelievably. You've produced enough milk for six weeks of feeding, and you can stop this now. Formula isn't poison, you know. I shook it off. I wasn't stopping. When we finally, finally got home after four weeks and four days, my husband dutifully put together the spreadsheet. Drugs five times a day. Blood sugar takings eight times a day. 57 millilitres every four hours and no more and no less. Pumping 12 times a day for 40 minutes. I looked at the spreadsheet and realised that according to our calculations, I wouldn't be sleeping. It was time for my breastfeeding journey to come to an end. And I sobbed. And then, frankly, I sobbed with relief. However, we then existed for the next six months, nursing and mothering. I went into a complete spiral. 
I felt like a horrendous mother who couldn't take care of her baby. I was constantly angry or crying. My husband did all of the nights for weeks because I was struggling just to get up in the morning. The bottle feeding meant that everybody felt that they could, quote, have a go, where normally a mother would enjoy that bonding by herself or at least have the choice to. I felt more and more distant from my son, more and more angry, resentful, anxious and frustrated at the situation. The NHS came to my rescue. After much pursuing, a perinatal nurse started coming to the house. Then a community nurse to help me bond. We did play therapy, baby massage and just talked and I realised that I needed to take back control of the feeding. I started sloping off in private to feed my baby, having skin to skin but with the bottle. Very, very slowly I started to feel better. I'm now convinced that it was taking back control of that bottle feeding by asserting myself as the number one provider for my child that got me over my lowest point. Surrounded by the breast is best posters in capitals for my son's checkups, I gradually got used to the naive questions or pained looks when I explained that I was bottle feeding and started channeling that anger instead into being tiger mum. A few friends doggedly checked in on me every day and my medicalised motherhood finally came to an end when my son was declared cured at six months old following an eight-hour supervised fast in hospital to check that he could maintain normal blood sugar by himself. It has taken a huge amount to write this down. And I'm only sorry that it's such a long story. 17 months later, I feel strong. I'm hugely passionate about the charity Kicks Count and about mothers trusting their own instincts and above all, passionate about my guest's project and how unbelievably important her work is. Jess is a guardian angel herself to so many parents and babies and it was my great privilege to interview her. So our next guest is an entrepreneur in the social networking space with a seriously amazing and worthwhile twist. I am proud, honoured and very, very excited to have her here. She set up Friendly, an app that exists as a private space to help parents of children with special needs, whether it's birth-related or chronic long-term problems, to find other families like theirs travelling similar journeys and as a space to bring together all the fantastic information from the charities and organisations who can help. The Friendly app is engineered so that families can have a break from the clinical and talk about everyday things with people who get it. Or if they want to, there are areas where they can delve into more condition-specific aspects of their child's health journey. A mother of two, she has her own personal story that got her to this space, which we'll be delving more into today. Her conviction that no family should navigate life alone, even if their journey is different has made me well up several times, so I'm really hoping I managed to claw my way through this episode in one piece. Welcome, founder and CEO of Friendly, Jessica Barker. Hello, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> it's lovely to see your face. We haven't actually seen each other before, so we're video chatting, which is very nice. <laughs> you look fresh and bright, and I look like I've been dragged no, through a hedge backwards. I've just put some lipstick on. It's typical mum look, like wet hair, scruffy clothes, <laughs> you know, but it's fine. <laughs> 
that's what my mum always says as well. She said, darling, have you got some lipstick? I'm just like, no, mum, no. <laughs> but you've obviously been doing this for longer than me. <laughs> oh, dear. So where are you in the world right now? And what can you see in front of you? So I'm in Birmingham in my bedroom, hiding from the children, trying to make sure that my littlest child doesn't make too much noise. You can probably still see some pictures of polar bears up on the wall up there. We swapped rooms and haven't got around to changing it yet. You know how it is. It's a very wet day here in Birmingham. You mentioned your youngest. So tell me about your immediate family unit. Who is in it? So there's me, obviously, and my husband, Adam. And we've got two children. There's Maisie, who's five, and Florence, who is two. Florence is very cheeky, very ginger, and Maisie's, I would say, the boss of the house. So Florence, is she a stereotypical redhead? Is she very fiery? Yes, she is. They both are, to be fair. Maisie's got brown hair, but she's also very fiery. I do feel sorry for Adam, he living in a house with uh, three females, but it's fine because he's building a man shed in the garden to escape. So <laughs> <laughs> It's nice that he feels he has to do that. That's lovely. I know. So in my introduction, I mentioned Friendly and, and it's such an interesting story. And I'll just describe to our listeners how we actually know each other or rather kind of don't know each other. But this is what sort of happened with this podcast. And I'm just sort of going with it. A very good friend of mine from an old job, Viv, if you're listening, she saw all my social media spamming and was like, actually, I know somebody who could be a really, really good guest and she's doing something really amazing. And I think you're kind of like her story for all sorts of reasons, personal reasons included. And that was that really. So tell me about the origins of Friendly. So what did you do pre-Maisie? So I went to uni and I did an English degree with a view to being a journalist. So I went on to do my postgraduate journalism qualification and worked in journalism for a couple of years. And then I decided that I wanted to buy a house and needed a really stable job. So I moved into public relations. And I worked in public relations for a few years before I ended up at Morrison's as a PR manager there, just before I had Maisie. So that was kind of my last in-house job was a PR manager at Morrison's. And when I had Maisie, my life was turned upside down, really. And I had to reassess everything. So going back to work wasn't an option, going back to work for somebody else. And that kind of spurred me on to do my own thing. When Maisie was about 18 months old, I, I went freelance and did PR and communications for brands and businesses who needed a hand. So that's in a nutshell, <laughs> without delving into kind of what happened with Maisie, that's sort of where my career has been. And do you mind if I delve into no, it at all? delve away. You say that your world got turned upside down. Did you have a normal pregnancy? Was everything kind of typical or not typical? I had a, a normal pregnancy. I was very, very sick throughout the whole thing, which I just thought was normal. There were quite a few times where I had reduced fetal movement, so I had extra scans. I probably had five or six extra scans to check Maisie, and everything was apparently okay. One of the scans was just a couple of weeks before she was born. So I thought, okay, there's nothing to worry about. And then about 24 hours after she was born, we were still in hospital and she was breathing very fast. She looked a little, little bit dusky. They came to check her three times. And on the third time, they said, yeah, we're not happy. Something's not right here. So they whisked her away and put her under like a lamp. And she was really, really, she looked indigo, really. 
They then listened to her heart and said, she's got a heart murmur. We need to take her to neonates and find out what's going on. Obviously, we didn't know anything about this. So it was just, I mean, it was horrible. It was like we'd been hit in the stomach with a sledgehammer. Um, and we were almost too shocked to ask any questions. We just sort of went along with them and, and let them do what they needed to do. And it was probably after a few hours in neonates that they'd done some heart scans and they took us into the family room, which is normally not a great sign. So they took us into the family room and said, um, she's only got a half a heart and there isn't a treatment for it. But you can go through a series of three open heart surgeries to kind of keep her going. And we need to do the first one tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I can't really describe how bizarre a situation this was. I mean, we just had a new baby. It was supposed to be a happy time. We'd been arguing over things like, you know, what colour we're going to paint in the nursery and um, when I would be going back to work and and all of that just, you know, it just seemed so insignificant. And they said, you know, if we don't do this surgery, then she won't survive. So we signed the paperwork and then she went for her first open heart surgery, which was nearly nine hours long. And then our journey into the medical world began, really. Her heart was only the size of a small walnut at this point, so it was a very risky operation. And we were then in hospital for six months. She was in intensive care for a long time. Then she had her second open heart surgery when she was eight weeks. And we eventually got our car seat moment when she was nearly six months old. And yeah, it was amazing. Because in the meantime, the ward that Maisie was on was actually next to the antenatal ward. So I was kind of seeing all of these new parents going home with their babies. And I mean, it was horrific. My mental health suffered. Yeah, it was it was horrible. So actually getting her home was amazing. She was on oxygen and tube fed. But I didn't really care about that as long as we were home. You know, when you're learning to be a new parent and you have all the hospital staff watching you, it's a very artificial environment and you can't really learn how to be a mum. So, yeah. All I can say is that I empathise, sympathise so much with this situation. What's going through my head is the practicality of she was on oxygen. So how did that even work, taking her home? We had a backpack for the oxygen. So when we went out and about, we took the backpack with us. And then at home, we had two sort of big oxygen generators. So we had one in the living room and one in the bedroom. So she was always tethered to the generator. So if we were cooking, for example, she couldn't be too close oh to us cooking. <laughs> so we'd have to kind of put her in the hallway in her in her rocking chair on her oxygen and just kind of watch her while we were cooking, just in case, you know. It's just so absurd. Do you yeah, know what I mean? it really is absurd. I mean, you just do not imagine your version of parenthood will be like that that you don't nothing prepares you I mean you read all these books about well they're going to have a sleep routine and you know the experience was just so far removed from what we had anticipated it was bonkers you know bonkers so we had this oxygen canister in the living room one in the bedroom so at night time we'd have to make sure that it wasn't wrapped around her neck and she had an NG tube in as well so they used to get tangled and yeah it was it was a nightmare <laughs> So for anybody listening, an NG tube is a nasogastric tube, which is pretty much the staple. I mean, having that as well. Was she on TPN? Yeah, she was on TPN for ages. So she wasn't having anything. But the, the nurses said to me, you know, keep expressing because 
one of the most profound emotions throughout this whole initial period was that I just want to feed her. I just want to feed her. And I can't. I can't do anything for you. Your life is completely in their hands. All I could do was sit in a little room and express. I know. (laughs) I'm already crying. We're like five minutes into this. Uh. (laughs) You're going to set me off now. This is why I'm so glad that we've got you on this, because I just feel like for everyone who has had a normal experience and knows somebody that hasn't, it's really important that people know this stuff and hear about it. So I'm just very grateful. I'm very happy that you're on. So for people who don't know what TPN is, TPN is, I think it's total prenatal nutrition. Is that right? Something like that. A lot of um, neonatal intensive care units don't have the most amount of funding, so still rely on huge amounts of fundraising and charity donations, etc. And I remember one of the nurses telling me that this TPN is 50 quid a bag. I think that's what people often don't know about those units, is that even some of the incubators are £15,000 each, and these are all dependent on families donating, fundraising, et cetera, et cetera. So if you ever see people fundraising for units, like get involved <laughs> because those are literally keeping children like Maisie alive. It's so, so important. So how long was Maisie on the TPN for? Yeah, so I think she was on it for maybe two months. Her liver took a battering and so did her kidneys. I think she was on dialysis pretty much constantly at that point because the impact it was having on her kidneys was very profound. I think one of the nurses said to us, you know, per day it costs something like £3,000 to keep her alive. And it's just mind-boggling, isn't it? It is completely mind-boggling. And again, it is so hard to relate to the new mum stuff. I don't know if you had this, where I was part of NCT, which I loved and had really lovely girlfriends but it was so painful to see the updates and hear about them going to breastfeeding workshop or this or that when I was sitting on the world's most uncomfortable chair in what I called the dairy which was like the milking room in the hospital. Exactly right I mean I I did NCT as well and the NCT girls were amazing a really lovely bunch of women We had a very special bond going through those pregnancy stages together. But then when Maisie was born, we had a a WhatsApp group going. So every time there was a new baby, somebody announced it on WhatsApp, which was really lovely. And we did the same when Maisie was born. You know, she's here. And then... Like, yay, happy, happy. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next day, I I think I just sent a message saying, I I didn't have the energy to say anything too comprehensive, but I think I just said something like, things are not good. (laughs) I'll speak to you soon. And I stayed part of that group. But then as time went on, we were in intensive care. And like you say, sitting on horrible chairs and the world we were in was just so different. I found it so painful getting messages like, oh, we've been here today. And I just couldn't take it. My mental health was in such a bad state. And they didn't mean it to. And it's not their fault. But it was. It was making me so much more sad that we didn't have the same journey. I had to leave the group. I just had to say, I'm so sorry, but I can't take it anymore. And I, and I didn't rejoin it because we had such a strange first couple of years, really, that it was just so different. I just felt it very painful. 
it's so hard to explain to people that you didn't change your child's nappy for the first time for weeks and weeks because the number of wires makes it physically impossible without people helping you. You spend nine months thinking about all this stuff and what it's going to be like. It's hard not to transfer that fear onto other people. Yeah, it is. I've got a friend who's pregnant at the moment and she's been through a few rounds of IVF and I'm very excited for her. But there is a part of me that just thinks, you know, you can never take anything for granted. And and I don't think I'll ever be the same again, to be honest with you. Um, I think that's something that will stick with me. And you do have to be careful not to dampen down other people's excitement. Something I did struggle with with Florence and for a long time, well, for yeah, for a long time, I didn't want another child because of the trauma we went through with Maisie and I didn't think that I could cope with it again. Um, my husband's approach was very different. He really wanted to have another child and he felt that that would make our family complete. And we were kind of at loggerheads about this for a while and he really wanted one and I was like, no, I can't do it. In the end, he persuaded me. I wasn't as happy as he was. I went through the whole pregnancy really, really worried. The first antenatal consultant we saw at the local hospital said, well, I don't think you need extra scans. And I said, whoa. And I just asked to switch hospitals. I said, send me to the women's hospital and they will decide. So they decided, yes, you need to be under fetal medicine. And I had scans every couple of weeks. I was measuring a bit small, but they couldn't find anything wrong. I still didn't really feel reassured by that, given the experience we'd had. So I paid for a few private scans as well, just to put my mind at rest. To be completely honest, I didn't feel as excited as I should about the pregnancy because I think it was more of a self-defense mechanism because I thought if I get too excited and something's not right, I will have to go through that pain all over again. So I probably wasn't as connected with Florence when I was pregnant as I should have been. But when she was born, it was a completely different story. And it's the best thing that we ever did, to be honest. We had that new baby experience with her. I wasn't prepared for how positive an experience it would be. She has a really special bond with Maisie. She's given us that experience that we didn't have before, which is really special. And I don't regret it at all. I think, I think it, it was an amazing thing to do. But at the time and while I was pregnant, I felt completely disconnected. And I, and I know that a lot of people have felt the same, actually. That when you go through something horrific, your, your mind does protect itself in ways like that. So It's a very weird experience when you're extremely anxious about something and then your anxiety gets realised because you're like, well, I was worried and then it did happen and you, everyone yeah. was saying, oh, it'll be fine. And yeah. then when he was born and it wasn't, and I was like, see? Yeah. <laughs> we sound very similar. That's, that's almost exactly what happened with us. So I was very, very anxious in my pregnancy with Maisie for no apparent reason. And then something bad happened. But then it didn't stop there because in hospital, I was always the first one to notice when something wasn't right. And everyone else would say, she's fine. Don't be anxious. And I'd be like, she's not fine. I'm not being anxious. Listen to me. And then I was proven right. And then it gets into a cycle where your anxiety is validated when you're already in a state of hyper alert. That's really dangerous <laughs> to your mental health mm. because you just think I can't depend on anybody else to notice things. And I'm always right with my anxiety. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the way the system is set up, you don't have like a single point person 
it's always like a collective of people because if your child has a variety of health problems it's several things so we had an endocrine consultant and then we had a nutrition consultant and then we had a whole group of people who were responsible for my son's care and it means that as the parent you are often the person with the most knowledge so you're not just oh yes mummy knows best it's like well actually I'm kind of like their 24-hour nurse who does actually know more than whatever doctor is on duty because you heard the last doctor and the last doctor and the last nurse talking about it or whatever but you can't let your guard down doesn't it and you've always got to be on it for you this nuclear bomb has gone off in your life for them of course it's their day job and that's the sad reality scary so Maisie had her second open heart surgery at eight weeks What did that journey look like to getting her home? And did you know what you were aiming for to get her home? So we weren't really aiming for anything except stability and getting to a point where Maisie was stable enough to leave the hospital, which just seemed like an impossible task. She couldn't keep her oxygen saturations up. One day she was blue, the next day she wasn't. She had terrible reflux, so she wasn't keeping any fluids down. She just wasn't stable enough. And they said to us, you know, I don't know when you're going to get home. It all depends on Maisie. We are being led by Maisie. And she started, her oxygen saturations were still not very good, but they started to kind of level out a little bit. They weren't swinging quite so much. And it was at that stage that we started talking about going home. I really wanted to get home. So I was kind of pushing them saying, when can we go home? When can we go home? and trying to get everything in motion. Because as you know, it's like you said, there's so many different teams involved that have got to sign you off before you can actually go anywhere. (laughs) Um, It took quite a long time. So when we got home, she wasn't amazing, but she was stable. And that's, they were happy enough at that point to let her go home. One of the nurses actually said to us, you know, I'm really surprised that you're making it home. I was like, "Hmm, so are we, (laughs) because we really didn't think that we would be able to take her home. So how did that make you feel when she said that um I did have a bit of a double take to be honest but she was just being a realist and we were thinking that too so yeah I mean it was a shock to hear a nurse say it because you know if a nurse says it then things are serious but it wasn't anything that we hadn't thought ourselves five and a half months is an extraordinarily long time a really long time. Again, for people who are listening who are alien to this world, when the babies are born and they're in the NICU, they're considered sterile. So if you take them home and then there's a health problem, they can't come back to the NICU because there are so many other babies who are extremely unwell and they can bring in bugs. So if your baby has to come back, then they go to the children's hospital or they go they go to a special pediatric ward. They're not on the NICU anymore. So were you literally in the NICU for five and a half months? No, we were in intensive care for probably maybe six weeks. Then we went to high dependency and she had her next operation and we went back to ICU for four weeks or so. And then she went back to HDU and then she went to the ward eventually. So we were in a little cubicle on the cardiology ward. Right. Okay. And I guess that's just because Maisie's problem was so specialist, right, that they had to keep an eye Yeah, so she needed to be under the cardiologists, really. They had a HDU on the cardiology ward, so it was all kind of contained in there. 
So you must have known the hospital inside out by the time you left. Yes, yeah. And we'd eaten all the sandwiches in the shop about 20 times over. Um, We knew all the um, cafe staff who were giving us coffee at 3am and we were on first name terms with the cleaners and pretty much everybody. And you must have gone through people leaving the postnatal ward, etc. with their babies. You must have also seen a lot of mums leaving the NICU with their babies, people that you'd really got to know. And that must have been really hard in itself as well. Yeah, it was very difficult. People who were on, on a similar journey to us, just going home and everything being okay. Obviously, I was very happy for them. But it's only natural that you feel a bit jealous, I suppose, to put it bluntly, that that's not you going home. How were you spending your days? It's like 10 or 11 hours and there's not a whole lot you can do because you're generally just sitting next to an incubator getting backache or pumping. So were you in there every day? How did you keep yourself going mentally during that time? I think when you're going through a situation like that, you don't necessarily feel the full effects on your mental health straight away. I think adrenaline kicks in and and gets you through. And then it's afterwards that you crash and everything else happens. So when Maisie was in intensive care, we weren't able to sleep in there, but we were sleeping in hospital accommodation. And then when she moved to the ward, we were in a cubicle and, and Adam and I would take it in turns to stay with her overnight. But we didn't really sleep because she was so unstable. It's not like she kind of slept at night time. She was unstable all through the day and night. So we just survived on coffee, really. And yeah, coffee. it's incredible that you did manage to keep going and how strong all of these parents that are going through this situation are and the stamina and resolve that people have to get through really awful situations so I'm just amazed thank you I mean people say things like and you've probably had this as well I don't know how you did it I don't know how you do it and actually you have to do it because it's your child and you have no choice (laughs) so your body somehow just does it and it might not be until much later that you feel the effects of that. I know for me it was when we got home that my anxiety got really really bad and my depression got really bad and all of the things that we'd seen sort of came back to haunt me really. But when we were going through it my body just dealt with it almost like a robot. Mm -hmm. Just going through the motions. Yeah exactly. And that's interesting that that sort of can happen after the event and it's almost like a post-trauma, really. You know, post-traumatic stress, I know it has to be one event, but like a continually stressful event does have a very similar effect on you um, and the way you view the world. And that's probably why I'm very passionate about mental health and whatever journey you've had, mental health is just so important and having the support you need is vital really. So you've got Maisie home. What had happened with work at this point? Because what on earth was going on with your maternity leave, all the practical elements? What was happening with that? I was actually made redundant when Maisie was in intensive care. So I think Uh, I just laughed when my manager told me on the phone and I just thought, do you know what? I've got bigger fish to fry right now. I don't really care. (laughs) I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I'm so sorry. 
I'll be honest with you, I really, at that point in time, I, I didn't care because I knew that I wouldn't be going back. And I just thought, meh, life goes on. And actually it opened up other doors. So I'm quite glad that it did happen. So yeah, it's fine. Very philosophical way of looking at it. I think there's no other way of looking at it, really. Also a good point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got made redundant. Excellent. <laughs> it was really helpful. But then you were on this sort of strange maternity leave of essentially nursing, really, because that's what it was. And you said that Maisie had three open heart surgeries. So when was her third? Because she had her first at day one, second at eight weeks. When was her third? Her third one was last August, so August 2019. Okay. So she was four? Yes, yeah. And was that something you always knew was going to have to happen? Yeah, so we always knew that she would have to have it. So with her condition, it's palliative surgery. They have to have three open heart surgeries, which reroutes the flow of blood through the heart. So the third stage is always, the goal is to, is to get them to the third stage, basically. A lot of children with her condition don't make it to that point. So the goal was to get her to her Fontan, which was last year. Sorry, forgive my ignorance of the terminology. Could you describe for our listeners what Fontan is? It's very complex and I probably couldn't tell you like a doctor could, but (laughs) essentially it reconnects the arteries that, that go through the heart and diverts the flow of blood. So she has a passive flow of blood from her head downwards. And this surgery will prolong the functionality of her heart, if you like, uh, and will hopefully get her to a point where she is a suitable candidate for a transplant. So, I mean, 35 years ago, they didn't treat hyperplastic left heart syndrome at all. So the surgery is still very new and there's still lots of development going on. So mm-hmm. the future is very unknown, really. That ambiguity in itself must be pretty tough to deal with. Yeah, we live in the moment and we, we live for today. And for somebody like me, who's a serial planner, that's really hard. <laughs> just got to go with the flow. But you must have found that quite painful initially to be open about that story. Or were you always open from the beginning? No, naturally, I'm quite a closed person. So I wouldn't be public about our journey or talk about it, really. And then I thought, well, actually, our story is the whole reason behind it. And it's important for people to know, A, why I've done it, and B, that they're not alone. Because you do feel incredibly lonely on that journey. And I felt it was time to not be so closed and to be more open and honest about things. Because then it helps other people, right? So... How soon after Maisie did you start thinking about the concept of Friendly and all of its component parts? I think I started the journey when Maisie was at first come home from a hospital and I tried to find something online or an app or something that would connect me with other people locally going through a similar thing because I thought, well, It would be really nice to meet up with another mum who has a baby, maybe on oxygen or NG fed, who understands that we can't go out in the rain, you know, who just got it, who just understood what our life was like. And I just couldn't find anything to connect me locally. There were some really great Facebook groups that were very supportive, but nothing to really let me have that connection with someone locally. I found lots of other mum apps and things, but they weren't really geared up for a different version of parenthood. 
So that's when it started. I didn't really think about doing anything about it then. But that's when I noticed that there was a need for something like that. And then probably about 18 months ago, I started speaking to other parents who were saying the same thing. You know, we're really lonely. My child's lonely. It would be really good if there was some way of finding people local to us. And and then I started thinking about it more. And then I saw an advert for NatWest's Back Her Business campaign. It's all about getting women into business and more female entrepreneurs. And I ran a crowdfunding campaign and I was really surprised how successful it was. A lot of people seemed to believe in the idea. And then I started running focus groups alongside that. And and that's what really kind of catalyzed it. So I successfully raised £10,000 through that. And with the help of parents like me, kind of strove to build something that would plug that gap, really amazing that you managed to raise all that money and also what a great initiative actually but it goes to show how there is a such a need for this it's such it's such a good idea I would have cut off my left arm for something like that I was just googling and would find little threads in forums on random sites that I'd never been on before to explain just things like some of the terminology or, you know, things about my child's condition, which was extremely rare. And I I couldn't find anything. I found myself reading academic papers to try and get answers. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Well, there you go. You got your £10,000. And then you were probably thinking, oh, my God, well, now I've actually got to do something with this. I mean, it must have helped that you had a background in PR, right? Because a lot of this stuff is exposure and marketing. So how did you go about all of that? So obviously with my freelance PR and communications, I had quite a lot of contacts that could do various things for me. So I kind of got in touch with them all um, (laughs) to see how I'd go about creating an app because I'm not, I don't have a technology background. So I needed a bit of guidance and got that guidance from my friends and started designing the app myself. So you have to do wireframes. When somebody said, well, you need to do some wireframes, I was thinking, what are wireframes? So I spent a lot of time on Google. How do I do wireframes? Because obviously I was trying to do it as cheaply as possible. So if I did it myself, it would save some money. So I did all the wireframes for the app and got some feedback from some parents and managed to find a developer through somebody else that I know. And that's when it all began, really. I've learned so much throughout the journey. It's crazy. And there have been times where I've just wanted to pull my hair out because actually technology is not as easy to do as you think it is at all. So um, yeah, it's been quite a journey. I've learned lots of new things and met some great people too. Like you. Oh, I know your pain about trying to do everything yourself to do it on the cheap. But you do, as you say, you learn so much, right? Like so much probably couldn't go and build the app all myself now but I'd have a good go. (laughs) I know that this was happening while Maisie was still kind of a baby so this has obviously been a while in its inception. So when did Friendly officially launch? It launched in July and I'm working towards making it my full-time gig but obviously I've got to fund it so I'm still doing my PR and copywriting on the side so working at three o'clock in the morning and you know the normal mum stuff that you have to do and if you go on the app for everybody who's listening it is just so beautifully structured laid out and thought through thank you very much so what is the next phase ah I don't I'm not sure yet it's in discussion my husband has to listen to my ramblings and he's just you know like getting a bit fed up of it now but um I'm trying to make it useful for parents so 
I'm speaking to them really to see what they want. You know, there's no point in me creating something that they don't want. So I'm finding out what would be really, really useful to add for them. Though. Mm. Some tools to help with their kind of daily life, probably. That would be amazing. And I just wish this had come out before, but it must feel like a real achievement or such a positive channel of such a hard time in your life. I don't know about you, but I need something to focus on. I love being a mum, don't get me wrong, but I need a project. For my mental health, I need a project. And if I don't have a project, I find myself getting anxious and depressed. It's been fairly cathartic and I enjoy doing it. And yeah. And I think it's that catharsis or whatever the noun is that I think just gets you through having that outlet. In terms of your support system with your husband, it obviously sounds like he's been through his own struggle. I understand, obviously, that you did. What was that like? You were both going through this together and he was probably feeling a lot of pressure to be your support. I think men generally do. And I know with Adam, he was going through his own mental health challenges, but he felt that he had to be strong to support me so that we together could support Maisie. So he probably didn't talk about it as much as he might have done because he didn't want to add any more stress into the equation, which, you know, I knew, you know, as his wife, I knew what was going on and supported him in the best way that I could at the time. He's much more open about things now. Now we've kind of been through that and, you know, we support each other, really. I don't know about you. Did you experience the same? Yeah, I think my husband's view, because I've had a C-section as well, I think he'd felt like, well, however I'm feeling, she's going to be feeling worse because she's carried this child and she's not able to do all of the mummy things. And I think he just felt like he had to just keep it together. But I was pumping, you probably doing the same, but eight times a day to keep up my supply. So you're still doing all the night wakings because you have to pump overnight. So he was getting up with me at 1am, 4am, 7am to help me pump because I found it so excruciatingly painful, physically painful. And so I would sit there in the dark, he would be sterilising all the pump stuff and then he'd go back to bed. And when I got very ill with mastitis, he was so exhausted, he didn't even come to hospital with me. He was just too tired. But when we talked about it a bit more afterwards, I think he was finding it very hard. Yeah, I think I think that's very similar to Adam. They do get to a point where they crash and burn, like you say, that, that you just can't carry on anymore. <laughs> you just need, a, need some sleep. Yeah, It's a very emotional thing, isn't it? Did you have involvement from community nurses or anything like that? Yeah, so we had the community nurses coming once or twice a week just to check Maisie's oxygen saturations and just to see how we were getting on. So, yeah. And for you personally, did you have anybody? No, no. Jess, that's so hard. I think there's a real lack of mental health support in that situation. I didn't know where to go. And that was another reason why I wanted to kind of to do Friendly was to try and help people find resources like that. Because there isn't really anything out there that, well, there wasn't that I could find at the time. I can't believe you didn't have any support. That's just crazy. My mum kept saying to me, you need some support. You need to find some support. And I would say, I don't know where to find it. <laughs> where am I supposed to find it? It's very, very hard to find. You need to be on it and you need to know what you need and, and when you need it and keep chasing. 
when you feel so isolated from your normal support network, you need other people for mental health. There is a real gap in understanding that if you are a first-time mum and you're dealing with that identity transition and the monotony and the relentlessness, having a project can just make you feel like you again. Absolutely. Whether you've got a child with health needs or not, you know, when you have a baby, everything that you knew about yourself changes. Your identity changes, doesn't it? I mean, you go to work and then all of a sudden you're not going to work. You're at home changing nappies, which is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that motherhood is not a good thing. It absolutely is. But you do have to cope with a, with a massive identity shift. And if you're somebody that needs a project, that needs to be mentally stimulated, that's really hard. And it's a really old fashioned view to think that women don't have the same drives as men. I mean, of course we do. (laughs) It can really, really affect your mental health if you don't have a sense of purpose. And I think part of the additional challenge to having a child with a health problem is that it can be so mentally consuming and actually very complicated. You're often holding reams of information in your head about child's condition together with all the mum stuff as well. It's just hard to make the time. Mingzi's obviously had a huge complex array of things that you've had to deal with. But I'm just kind of asking myself how you've even done this. <laughs> I tend to work at really obscure times. My husband says things to me like, you really need a break. And I say to him, but this is my break. It's really bizarre, but that's how I see it. I don't see work as a stress. Like that. I, I kind of use it as my way of engaging my mind on something else. I always used to read as a way of relaxing. But now I find that my mind is too full of things to concentrate on reading, even though I love it. So I almost need my mind to be fully consumed by something else, like Friendly or whatever, to stop me dwelling on things and to to keep me busy. So what are the things that you've noticed from the app? It's been really, really encouraging to hear people saying like, oh my God, I can't believe something like this finally exists. It's been really needed. Why has nobody done it before? So that's been really encouraging. And what I've noticed is there are a lot of people that are really not necessarily feeling great and need mental health support, but are too scared to go and get it because they're worried what might happen, i.e. that, you know, their child might be taken away or whatever, or, or they don't know where to find it. And that's something that I'd like to develop and try and help with. But the, the positivity has been overwhelming, really. I've had lots of emails kind of from from people in other countries as well saying like, oh, when's it coming here? And I'm like, I don't know yet. (laughs) But (laughs) it shows that there's a need for it and and that people want it. And and yeah, that's just been really, really encouraging. That's so exciting that other people are globally thinking about this. And it's such a human need. Yeah, there's nothing quite like peer support. When you speak to others who have been there, you know that you're not alone and you have something to go off other than google you can't google everything yeah i tried when we were in hospital it's not possible (laughs) no it certainly is not possible i thought it was very interesting that you're saying that people feel afraid and i think that would be surprising to some people listening that what you know why on earth would your child get taken away if you're just reaching out for mental health support but the fact of the matter is if you have postnatal depression and are suffering from a situation that you can't escape like a child with a chronic health condition you can feel angry sometimes you can feel upset resentful disengaged 
suicidal, the whole range of emotions. And it's very difficult to be honest about those emotions when I think it was well-meaning, but I got given forms by my perinatal nurse that used to come and see me every week with things like, oh, have you ever, have you ever thought about harming your child? And I was like, oh my God, like, does anybody ever tick the yes box here? Yeah. Like, I mean, the point is, is that one has to think that, you know, well, what are they looking for? And can I be really honest with yeah. how I'm feeling and the, the rage that you can feel sometimes at the whole situation? So that might be surprising to some people to listen to, but it's true. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really important area. And you don't always feel like saying, you know, yes, I have felt suicidal because you think, well, they think I'm not going to be able to care for my child. They're going to take her away and we'll be on some kind of watch list. And so you suffer in silence. And then that's when bad things do happen because you don't have support because you're too scared to ask for it. And I think that feeling where if your child is poorly, that you you can't give your child what they need. It's like the most basic thing on the planet in your head. You just think just to be a mom and women are on this earth, you know, to create children. And I mean, obviously not purely, but it's a huge (laughs) part of being a woman. It's a huge, huge part biologically. You know, we're designed for that. And when you feel like you're failing at it and you feel angry and all those emotions, I think it's very natural just to think, well, is there any point? Like, why am I even here? Someone else is looking after my child if they're in hospital anyway. So I'm just not needed. Mm. And I think that can be a very scary space to be in when you're feeling vulnerable. Yeah, definitely. So the future of Friendly, so you say that you've got all these grand plans and all these amazing global ambitions, but where would you like it to be in 10 years? And in terms of your family, where would you like to be? So I'd like Friendly to grow into, I'd say a national at this stage, but maybe in 10 years, you never know, a national support network where whatever situation you're going through, there will be somebody else who is going through the same thing or has been through the same thing that you can talk to and somewhere that will make it easy for for you to find what you need and who you need, depending on what you're going through. I'd really like to focus on the mental health aspect of it and yeah, to grow it into a national support network. Don't think you're far off, let's be honest. And if you look at the very rapidly increasing number of followers you've got going on, I think this is really something incredible, especially given that you've only been around since July. It's just extraordinary. So watch this space, everybody, because Jess is seriously onto something. A couple more questions and then I'll let you let you leave me. Okay. Where do you look forward on that goal that you've got in mind? What would you want? Maisie and Florence to think of you and think about what you've done and what you've achieved and how you were as a mum? I'd like them to most of all feel loved and and wanted and well cared for. I'm very passionate about trying to protect their mental health as well so I'd like them to grow up as happy and as, as healthy as possible. I'd also like them to be inspired that they can do anything that they put their mind to. I do believe that. I think if you really, really want to do something, you can do it. You just have to find a way, a way of doing it, really. And and I'd like them to follow their dreams. And especially with Maisie, because people always said to us, you know, she probably won't make it to age five. And she has. And she's just proving everybody wrong. So I think she's going to be a trailblazer. (laughs) I have no doubt about that at all from everything you've told me about her. (laughs) 
Are there any particular pieces of advice that you'd want to leave any mums that are in similar situations? So perhaps users of Friendly who are listening to this, who are really bothered about that transition back to work and how to manage it. Is there any advice that you can extend to them? I think it's all about finding a route back to work that works for you if you can. So whether that's flexible working, working from home, trying to take as much away from the office as you can, because you can be on a very demanding schedule when you have a child with complex health needs, can't you, where you're in hospital all the time and it makes work an absolute nightmare. So it's finding the ways that work best for you. So my advice would be to not be afraid to ask for what you need because there's a lot more awareness of flexible working than there used to be. And there might be things that you can do that you're not aware of. So don't be afraid to ask. And if you have an inkling that you might want to start something of your own, then nurture it, explore it. You never know where it might lead. I feel like these are pretty golden pieces of advice here. And I think for anybody who is listening and are in this situation currently and are feeling like they really need help, go to the Friendly app for resources, but also feel free to reach out um, to either Jess or myself and we'll try and point you in the direction of any resources that we know of that we can find for you. There are a couple of pieces of advice there that I just thought were amazing, which I think is just not being afraid to ask for what you need and I think that stereotypically sometimes we can be not very good at that sometimes women just feel like they can't speak up and you absolutely can and it is your right to speak up so don't be afraid to ask for what you need and then secondly you know that if you've got something that you want to do whether it's something on the side and obviously because of my line of work I'm very very passionate about this but you've got a little passion project nurture it explore it you need it So make sure that you try and carve out some space, draw on your village, draw on your support network and make sure that you make that time for you. Because again, it's that annoying cliche, but you've got to put your own oxygen mask on sometimes before you can help other people. So that's kind of where I want to leave us. Look, Jess, it's been such a pleasure. I'm sorry for crying five minutes in. (laughs) (laughs) It's been really, really lovely speaking to you. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me. It's just such a privilege. I feel really, really honoured. So tell us where we can find you and Friendly. Tell us all of your social media handles. Okay, so the website is www.friend and then ili.com. So friendly.com. And Instagram's just at Friendly. Twitter is Friendly app. And you can also download the app from your um, app store, whether you're on an iPhone or an Android phone amazing thank you thank you for having me well everyone that's the end thank you so so much for listening don't forget to subscribe to new leaf on wherever you get your podcast from so that you don't miss out on my next episode feel free to message me directly on instagram at at new leaf podcast if you like and on at Looper growth if you are feeling inspired and want to find out about my personalized pre and postnatal mum coaching programs Have a lovely, lovely day. And if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye, everybody.